Please be seated, church. So this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was gifted with some memories of my childhood. And my grandparents moved in with my brother and I and my mom when I was five. And I can recall as a youngster coming home from the bus stop and knowing that my grandma was making homemade spaghetti sauce. Not because she had told me in advance, but because houses away, as I approached the house, I can smell the fragrance of grandma sauce. And I remember how excited I get when that fragrance came into my nose and my whole being, I was so excited. And then I'd get in the house and open the door and smack, get hit with a whole nother level of that aroma. You know, it didn't matter what my grandma did. It didn't matter if she left the lid on or took the lid off. That aroma was going to infiltrate every area of that house. No matter what she did, it was going to penetrate everywhere, and those around could smell the fragrance of that sauce. You know, in, in a similar fashion, when the Spirit of God dwells in a person, the fragrance, the aroma of Christ, which is love, it permeates through every part of the individual, and it's witnessed by those that they encounter. I want you to think about that this morning as we just sang about our Savior's love. As we look this morning to the Spirit's work, we're going to continue in our study this morning in the book of 1 John. And we're going to pick up right in the middle of John's teaching about love. And though we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning, if you'd open up your Bibles to get some context, we're going to read together 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 together. So if you open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, if you'd arrive at verse 7, and if you're able, if you'd rise to your feet for the honor of the public reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he and God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Please be seated, church. As we dive back into this letter penned by the Apostle John, let us be reminded this morning this is the same John that penned the Gospel of John. John is an eyewitness of the teachings and the life of Jesus. He's not simply a bystander. He has been chosen by Jesus to be one of his disciples. Even more, along with Peter and John's brother James, John was chosen by Jesus to be with him at some intimate times, at his transfiguration, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is why John can claim confidently in verse 14, and to those to whom he's writing to, that they have seen and testify to the Father sending the Son. He was there. He lived it. He experienced it. He knew Christ. And to those who he was originally writing to, they were also witnesses to these things. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a fairy tale. It is not a hoax. It's not a crutch for those who have a limp. The reality is the gospel is far more than a crutch. Through the gospel, dead people are made alive. Through the gospel, sinners are made saints. Through the gospel, enemies of God are made friends of God. This is what motivated John to write this. In his gospel, he makes it clear as he records his gospel account that the purpose of his writing in his gospel is that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that they would have eternal life in his name. At the end of his gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, he wrote, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His gospel was written for evangelistic reasons. It's so that people would have life in Jesus' name. But now we have this letter, 1 John. And this letter is penned so that those people would know they have assurance of their salvation. And to do this throughout this letter, John repeatedly addresses three different tests. A doctrine test. He goes to a moral test. And he also goes to a love test. And he argues that if these things are evident in your life, that you could have full assurance of your salvation. That for the believer, it should never be a guessing game. Am I his? And is he mine? But we would have full assurance. And so those tests ask questions like this. Do you profess that Jesus came in the flesh to be the savior of the world? Is there validation of regeneration in your life through the evidence of obedience to Christ? And lastly, do you love others with God's love? The fruit or the outward evidence of one's salvation is the proof of the inward work, the work of God's grace in their life. 
Salvation is not the work of a sinful man. It is entirely the work of a triune God. Without the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, we would all remain in darkness. We would be lost and in bondage to our sin. We would have no hope. We would live in fear of certain expectation of God's judgment for our rebellion against him. But because of the abiding work of our triune God, believers enjoy full assurance of their salvation. Look again with me at our passage in 1 John this morning. As we look through these verses that we're honing in on this morning, verses 13 through 16, I want you to take special note of the references to the three persons of the Trinity. I'll read them again starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. We clearly see the Trinitarian nature of this passage. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. But before we dig deeper into that, we must pay attention to one of John's favorite phrases that he begins this passage with again. Beginning in verse 13, he says, By this we know. John wants to point out how believers know they have salvation. He uses this phrase 11 times. This phrase, or a derivative of it, 11 times in this letter. And they're key to his argument that as a believer, you would know that you have eternal life. Let's skim through those real quick. If you would, turn a page or two to the left to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to see the multiple times he uses this. 1 John chapter 2. We read in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. A couple of verses later, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2, we read, But forever who keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. A derivative of it, he says it this way. He says, By this it is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Skim down to verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Down to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Down to verse 24 of chapter 3. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Turn over to chapter 4. Verse 2. By this 
you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever, does not, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That brings us to our present passage in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Continue looking on to chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And lastly, chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what was the point? Why take us through all that? Because it was his argument to say, you can know these things. That there's evidence that you would know that is not a guessing game. That you would know that you have eternal life by the evidence of God's spirit within you producing fruit in your life. Fruit is only born in someone's life who has the spirit of God. And we'll see that in our text this morning. But John, in our text this morning, focused on God's work in salvation. Look, at me again, look with me again at our passage this morning, verses 13 through 16 in John chapter 4. I want you to see how he pens this very intentionally about it's God's working. In verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because, what does it say? He has. He has given us of his spirit. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father, what? The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And again in verse 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Do you see the pointing to the work of God? It is entirely on him. It is not on us. It's what our triune God has done for our salvation. And John points to that. And so we'll break down this into three points this morning. The first thing we'll look at is the giving of his spirit. We'll see that in verse 13. Second thing we'll see is the sending of his son in verses 14 and 15. And lastly, we'll look at the love God has for us in verse 16. So let's begin in our first point this morning, the giving of his spirit. Again, this, looking at verse 13, we read, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. You know, three times in this short passage, John writes about us abiding in God and God abiding in us. We see it in verse 13, we see it again in verse 15, and again in verse 16. It's this reciprocal abiding. It's John's expression to say that we have fellowship with God. It's us in God and God in us. But he makes it clear this is only possible through the Holy Spirit. Nobody in their own power, no matter how hard they wanted to or how hard they tried, could abide in God. It's impossible. This word abide means to remain, to stay, to reside, to have union with. When John speaks about abiding in God, he's referring to having union with Christ. Paul would put it this way, to be 
in Christ. One scholar points out that having union with Christ implies three things. The first is solidarity, meaning Christ as a second Adam is our representative. Secondly, it means transformation, meaning Christ by the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. And thirdly, union with Christ implies communion, meaning Christ abides with us as our God. The natural man has no union with God. So when John speaks about abiding in Christ or remaining in Christ or knowing Christ, he's referring to salvation. That those who are in Christ have salvation. You know, when he says to abide, to abide in God, he's not speaking about some level of maturity that a believer needs to strive towards. To abide in Christ is the position of every single believer. We know Paul the Apostle wrote that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new identity in Christ. There's a union with Christ. Paul would also write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have union with Christ, communion with him. So to abide, as we read it here, means to be in Christ. It's the fruit of the new birth. Believers abide in Christ. Unbelievers do not abide in Christ. You know, John was present. He was there when Jesus taught about the true vine and used the true vine metaphor. You know, Mark read to us from the Gospel of John chapter 14, but right after that, what we heard this morning and read this morning, in John chapter 15, I invite you to go ahead and turn there. John chapter 15. Jesus used the true vine, true vine metaphor. It makes that union very clear. The Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus says, starting in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. We're going to stop right there. I mean... You could read all through there as Jesus continued to teach. But imagine and think of this, John was there. You know, as we read what he penned in 1 John, he heard it from the lips of our Savior. 
John's not making this up. He's saying those who abide are those who are connected to the vine. Those who have union with the vine. It is they that produce fruit. You see, the, the fruit is the result that they are in the vine. You cut a branch off of a vine and guess what? It's not going to bear any fruit. That fruit comes from the vine. So the lack of fruit or a lack of fruit reveals the illegitimacy of the branches claimed to be in the vine. Fruit is evidence that you are in the vine. John will argue, as Jesus did, that that evidence is love in us, God's love. That that is the fruit that we are in Christ, that we have union with him. Hopefully you didn't totally flip over to John and leave your place in 1 John. If you did, find 1 John again. We're going back to our text this morning. 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 13. John makes it clear why a believer can abide in God. He says, because he has given us his spirit. It's the second time that John has said this in this letter. Back in chapter 3, we read it earlier. In verse 24 of chapter 3, he said, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. He repeats himself again here in chapter 4, verse 13. You know, even Jesus spoke and said it was better for him to go to the Father so that the Helper would come to be with the believer. He said it was better. Well, we're going to unpack that. What does it mean for the, the Helper, the Holy Spirit to come? Well, we see John talks about it means union with Christ. It means that union is only possible through the work of the Spirit. That when the Father draws a sinner to Christ... In faith and in repentance, he seals him with his Holy Spirit. God not only gifts the sinner with faith to believe, but he also gives the person of the Holy Spirit to take up residency in the life of the believer. It's this presence, this presence of God through his Holy Spirit that bears witness that we are children of God. Sit on that one for a minute. It is the presence of God through His Spirit in the life of the believer that testifies that they are a child of God. Paul would write this. He says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's Romans 8.16. It is the Spirit that testifies that we are children of God. And so when we speak of our triune God, the person of the Holy Spirit is often the one, sadly, that is most misunderstood. As a matter of fact, there was a research project done in 2018. It was called the 2018 State of America, America's Theology. It was commissioned by Ligonier Ministries. It was conducted by Lifeway Research. And the data they concluded is that a majority of American Christians had an unbiblical view of the person of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells the believer. Beloved, 
You who are saved and have union with Christ Jesus, you have him within you, dwelling within you. And yet, the research would show we have an errant view of who he is. And since he dwells within the believer, it's obviously important that we understand biblically who the Spirit is. Many times we speak of the believer and we say he's the helper because Jesus said if he goes, the helper will come. But he's not only the helper. He's the very presence of God in the believer. Again, it is that presence that gives us assurance of our salvation. Scholar and theologian Tom Schreiner comments about this assurance. He says, quote, God's work of salvation is not yet completed, but the Spirit assures believers that the work that God has begun will be completed, end quote. Amen. Absolutely. The assurance that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. One other thing that the study revealed is that many people think that the Holy Spirit is a force or some form of mystical power. He is a person. He's the third person of our triune God, meaning he has a personal nature. The Holy Spirit comforts. He grieves. He teaches. He speaks. He leads. And he has a will, all according to to Scripture. And as deity, the Holy Spirit possesses all the divine attributes of God. He is one with the Father and with the Son, and He is co-equal in power. It is the Holy Spirit that works in every facet of our lives, beloved. He is the active agent in our lives. He is the one who regenerates, and He is the one who sanctifies he is also the one that empowers us to produce fruit by living obedient lives. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the enjoyment of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the one that aids us in successfully fulfilling the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the primary reason we know God and that we know our Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there are many unbiblical teachings about the Holy Spirit. One such teaching proposes that the Spirit comes into the believer in installments. This unbiblical teaching points to like a second blessing or a second helping of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit. But you'll find this nowhere in Scripture. The truth is that when the believer is sealed with God's Spirit, he is sealed with the fullness of him. You can't get like half of him today or maybe a third of him one day and some more later is the fullness of the Spirit. He cannot be divided up, which means that you have the fullness of God's divine nature dwelling within you. Now, we could stop and just think on that for a bit. If you have union with Christ, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
the fullness of God. You're filled entirely with all of him. That makes sense now why the Bible says we can grieve him. Because he's filled us with the fullness of him to do his will. And yet when we don't do that, it's not because we weren't able, because we can, because we have his spirit. It's because we chose not to. And that grieves him. Let's look back to our text this morning. We may get out of here today. We may not. Um, you know, I'm going to play into, you know, my mom used to love the Weight Watchers diet. If you're familiar with the Weight Watchers diet, you can borrow points from like next week or whatever. I went a little short last week, so I'm going to borrow some points from last week and move them into this week. Back to verse 13 of chapter 4. Again, John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Again, it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that affirms that we abide in Christ and that he abides in us. It is also his illuminating work that enables us to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. It is the Spirit who does this work alone. The Spirit works apart from us in gifting us this. I say alone, alone apart from us, but not alone in the Godhead. The Father also works in our salvation, and so does the Son. Together, the triune God takes fully whole part of our salvation, which segues, segues us right into our second point this morning, the sending of his Son. Let's continue in verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, this is John speaking as an eyewitness. An eyewitness is to Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And he writes here one of the most Trinitarian passages. He speaks of the Father sending the Son to be the Savior of the world. And that to be able to confess that Jesus is the Son of God takes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Spirit's work in salvation, Martin Luther explained it this way. He said, quote, By my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, end quote. You know, it's noteworthy that Luther speaks of the Holy Spirit calling him through the gospel. John articulates the gospel here in a nutshell in verse 14. He says, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That expression, the Savior of the world, is only found twice in the New Testament. Once here and once in John's gospel. You might remember Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman at a well. Well, she went back into her village and told all the villagers all that she had learned about Christ. And then they came and they responded. And I'll read it to you. In John 4, verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just for the Jews, for the Gentiles. Jesus came to be the Savior. And yet, sadly, during the writing that John pens this letter during that time, there was a teaching creeping into the church that was twisting the truth. 
It negated the need for a savior. It denied personal sin because all physical matter they taught was evil. And so they weren't responsible for their sin. And so without sin, people don't need a savior. But on the flip side, those who are aware of their sin know that they need a savior. John writes, the father sent the son to be the savior. The one who would live a perfect life to fulfill the law. The one who would die in the sinner's place to satisfy God's wrath against the sinner. The one who would rise from the grave and conquer sin and death. Who would deny such glorious news? The God of the universe in the person of the Son would take on flesh to dwell among us. He would be tempted in every way, yet without sin. And he would suffer in our place. He would lay down his life for us. He who knew no sin would become sin that we could become the righteousness of God. This is Christ. In this letter of 1 John, John speaks about the richest riches of Christ that believers enjoy. In chapter 2, he spoke of Christ being our advocate. He also spoke about Christ, who is the one who propitiates sin. In chapter 3, he spoke of it's Christ who takes away their sin. He also said in chapter 3, it's Christ who destroys the work of the devil. And here in chapter 4, he tells us it's Christ who gives us life. Oh, the riches that are in Christ. And yet, this news is folly to those who are perishing. What does that mean? It means it's only by the gracious work of God's Holy Spirit, the activity of the Spirit, that blind eyes are opened to see this truth. If it were not for the Spirit's work, nobody would repent and believe. Nobody. It's the Spirit who enables us to testify that the Father has set the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. John says in verse 15, 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, it's the presence of the indwelling of God's Spirit that brings assurance of salvation. Listen, if it was not for the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you would still be rejecting the gospel. I would still be rejecting the gospel. You did not and I did not make the best decision of our lives. This is the work of a holy God and a good and gracious God who through his spirit would open our eyes to this glorious news. No, it's the Holy Spirit. He is the one who convicts us of sin. He is the one that reveals that we need a Savior. And perhaps you're here this morning and you realize this morning that you are in need of a Savior. And yet, you have not repented and placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you understand that this morning, it is because the graciousness of God through His Spirit would reveal that to you. So what now? Repent and believe. Humble yourself before God. 
Understand that it's his spirit that is showing you these things. Turn to him. Submit to Christ as Lord and Savior. And then you join the rest of us here today who have union with Christ by saying, thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit. This brings us to our final point this morning, the love God has for us. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. John writes, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is the second time in this chapter that John writes, God is love. John has just described this amazing love of God in the previous verses. God gave us his spirit. He has sent his son to be savior. And both of those, if we stare at those, they display God's amazing love for us. God gave us his spirit to live in us, but he gave his son to die for us. Both the spirit and the son are precious gifts from God. They're precious gifts of grace. They are God's love on display. And beloved, don't they shine brilliantly as we stare upon our good and gracious God? That God's love would be displayed to the unlovable? That his love would be for the rebellious? That his love would be for the depraved? That his love would be for the weak and the outcast? Every single one of us who have experienced new birth is because of the love of God through the work of his spirit. I want you to stop and all agree, we are not worthy of his love. We're not. We needed mercy and we needed grace. But by the sending of his son, we have come to know and we've come to believe the love that God has for us. There is great joy in knowing that we have union with Christ, that we abide in him and he abides in us. It means this also, it means that God is always with you. The Spirit dwells in you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, God is with you. He's with you as your helper. He's with you as your comforter. He's with you as your guide. He's with you as your strength. And though we may feel lonely at times, we are never alone. God is with us. So this takes us full circle. John's reasoning here takes us full circle regarding the abiding work of our triune God. While he points out that God and the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he also points out that God is love. Therefore, he concludes in this passage that those who have union with Christ, those who abide in God and God in them, are those who abide in love. So here's where we get to the so what of the sermon. John brings it full circle. He says the love is now manifested in the children of God. You remember I started this morning speaking of my grandma's spaghetti sauce? And you can see that puts a smile on my face just thinking about it once again. 
I mean, just the thoughts of the wonderful aroma and the fragrance that would come from that. And even as you enter the house, the fullness of it. John speaks here that, beloved, we have assurance of our salvation. And we know it to be true when our lives leave the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ, the love of Christ. And since the Spirit has taken up full residency within us, His fragrance should always be emanating from us, from our lives. Some of you might be sitting there going, oh, wow, this was really good until just now. Now it's getting a lot more personal and it's getting a lot more challenging and convicting. The same spirit that fills believers, the same spirit that equips believers and strengthens believers to demonstrate his love to others. Jesus said, look, if you pray, if you pray according to God's will, guess what? He's going to do it. He has commanded us to display his love. He's given us his very spirit within us. And so if you find yourself this morning, as I speak about love's, God's love emanating through you, perhaps it's a certain person that comes to mind and you think immediately, but not them. I mean, I'll do that to everybody else, but not this person or, or definitely not that person because they're not worthy. You remember about our position. We are not worthy. And yet God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Understand this, as John goes full circle and says, those who have union with Christ, those who are in him, that when we don't walk in love, when we don't display God's love for others, that the very spirit of God within us, that we are grieving him. not just that I just made a decision that I don't want to or I don't feel like it. It's that I have resisted God's love working through me. That God would be glorified in that. And so if you have a picture of somebody on your mind right now, somebody you know you have not demonstrated God's love to, know that you are grieving the Spirit of God. And I encourage you now, repent. Repent. Here's the greatness and the goodness of God. Is it is a one-step program. It is turn to Christ. Be strengthened in Him and in His Spirit and go and let His love shine forth from your life that He would receive all the honor and glory from your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending your son as we looked at this morning, that he would come to be the savior of the world. We thank you for giving us your spirit who illuminated the truth about Christ to us. God, we know it's through your work of salvation. We clearly see the love that you have for us. And Father, we ask that you would continually humble us so that we would walk by your spirit and display your love to those around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.